Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. So let's continue to worship in the Word. We don't even need to pause. Let's just go straight into Philippians 3. Verse 1, if you would remain standing, we're going to read through verse 11. It's my honor to do so. Again, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the elders here at Resurrection Church, and it's we're so glad you've decided to join with us in worship, both in song and now in the Word. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit is leading us today as we do that. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. You may be seated. Man, it's good to see you all this morning. Everybody doing well? Are you happy? Oh, that's good. Because Paul starts with a command. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he tells us, I'm going to repeat myself. You ever, you ever talk to people that they just say the same things over and over again? It kind of gets annoying. Um, Paul's been on the subject of joy for two chapters, really. In fact, I, I would argue that joy is a major theme in Philippians, primary theme in Philippians. He has talked about joy in God, joy in Christ over and over again. And, and I think it would be right for us to conclude that joy in God, biblically speaking, is paramount. It's paramount. I don't think it's a stretch to say if there's one thing, one primary thing that God in his inspired and infallible word wants his people to know and experience. If, could we boil it down to one thing? Could we boil it down? Like, like not that there's, there's not a lot of layers underneath it, but could we sum this up? all 66 books, by saying, primarily, this is what God wants for his people, joy in him. I mean, through the prophet Jeremiah, you know, a couple thousand years probably before this, God said through Jeremiah, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me the fountain of living water, and they've hewn out cisterns for themselves that hold no water. 
What's that a picture of? It's people that are going everywhere but him for satisfaction, right? This is what God has been after. And here, here at Resurrection Church, our mission statement, our vision statement, if you will, is very simple. And here's what it is, if you don't know it. For the glory of God and the joy of his people. That statement grows out of, you know, really one primary thought that that's what God, perhaps more than anything else, in fact, I'm not even going to say perhaps, I think more than anything else, that's what he wants, is joy in him for his people. Why? Because the glory of God, seen, savored, and celebrated, is the highest and greatest good. There, there is nothing more righteous than that. That God's glory be seen, savored, and celebrated. God is righteously all about himself. And he couldn't be any other way and not be perfectly righteous. If he's about anything other than himself, he's an idolater. So God is righteously all about himself, which means the greatest good is that his glory, his worth, his weight be seen, savored, and celebrated. And thus joy is the highest and greatest way that his glory is seen, celebrated, and savored. The joy of his people is the best way, the highest way for his glory to be put on display. His people have joy in him. So that's why our mission statement is for the glory of God and the joy of his people. You know, when Jesus was approached by a scribe, he was asked one time, what's the greatest commandment? And here's what, here's what was his answer. He quotes from the Old Testament to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I, I think we would agree. Love and joy are, they run hand in hand. Love at its essence is glad-hearted affection. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what's interesting. Jesus didn't say that the greatest commandment was to obey God. Love God. Not obey. Love. You, you, how many of you have never watched Andy Griffith? Good. There's an episode where the Mayberry Jail got some new prisoners, and Barney decides he's going to you know, brief these new prisoners on what he called the Rock, Mayberry Jail. And he said, here at the Rock, we have a few rules. You remember this episode? The first rule is obey all rules, right? That's not what God does. Obedience is essential for the Christian life. Amen? But isn't it interesting that Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? Glad-hearted affection always spills over into obedience, right? The aim of the Christian life is not obligatory compliance to God's precepts and rules. Read Revelation 2. Jesus shows up to the apostle John who's exiled on the island of Patmos and he says, I need you to write some letters, John. One of them goes to the church at Ephesus and here's what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, I know your toil, I know your patient endurance, you're bearing up under suffering and you're not putting up with false doctrine. That sounds good, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had for me at first. Jesus is not interested in a relationship with us that is void of glad-hearted affection. God's glory is the highest and greatest good. The joy of God's people in him is the highest and best way for his glory to be seen, celebrated, and savored. So Paul says, finally, not that he's done. The word finally means here's what remains Rejoice in the Lord. And I know I've already said that, Philippians, but I'm going to say it again, and it's not troublesome for me to do so, and it's safe for you. Safe. Why, why is it safe? Why say that? I, here's what I think. It's because he's about to warn them. And we don't like warnings. Warnings are negative. 
We, we want to just keep trucking on our own little path, doing our own little thing, our little way, in our way, in our time, according to what seems to work best for us. We don't want to be warned because that, that, that throws us off. We might get disoriented. We don't want to be warned. But Paul says, look, I, I've been talking to you about joy, and, and I'm commanding you to rejoice in the Lord, and now I'm going to repeat myself all the more, and I need to do this. It's not troublesome for me, and it's safe for you. What's the opposite of safe but danger? Perhaps there's danger lurking for the Philippians, maybe for us, when it comes to this paramount issue for all believers that we have joy in God. You tracking? Here comes the warning. Verse 2. Look out. Watch out for the dogs for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. When Paul uses the word dogs, he's not talking about your little lap dog, okay? Your, your, your little pet that crawls up, you know, or, or the Labrador retriever that greets you when you come home. He, he's not talking about that. This is a scavenging canine. The picture is a mangy, wild, scavenging canine that's wicked, rabid, and is tearing into flesh, mutilating some carcass. That's the picture, right? That sounds horrible, right? Sounds like something we should be warned about. And what's he talking about? Here's what's so startling. False teachers. And you might be like, well, that sounds bad, but here's, here's the false teachers that Paul is specifically addressing they weren't false teachers who were going around proclaiming that Jesus Christ wasn't Lord. They weren't promoting some other God, some other object of worship. Like that, we would think, would be evil and wicked, certainly, and certainly they need to be warned by that. But, you know, my pastor says Satan doesn't print $6 counterfeit bills to get as close to the truth as he can without compromising his lie. So there's a threat that's subtle, but it's nevertheless incredibly dangerous to their joy. And it's this, these teachers were not anti-Jesus. They were Jesus plus. Jesus plus circumcision. We don't talk about circumcision much anymore. It's a medical procedure that you, you do or don't when you have a son, right? Nowadays, it's, it's, it's neither here nor there, but for in Paul's day, it was still a pretty big deal, and I think these false teachers were going around not saying, hey, don't worship Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, but if you're not circumcised and, and looking down their sanctimonious noses at all of these Roman Gentile people who've now converted to Christianity, they're coming alongside that and saying, yeah, worship Jesus, but if you're not circumcised, you are less than and Paul calls them dogs, evil doers, mutilators. Here's, here's what Paul is saying to these false teachers. Your circumcision is amounting to nothing more than a mutilation of the flesh. Strong words from Paul, isn't it? Paul, why are you so adamant about this? Joy. He's concerned about joy. Rejoice in the Lord, right? These Jesus plus circumcisers, they weren't anti-Jesus, but they were also lauding right alongside Jesus what they were able to accomplish. You tracking? Why is Paul so upset about this? Verse three, for or because we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's break that down. We are the circumcision. What is Paul saying? As Christians, we haven't done something to ourselves. Something's been done to us. If we were to boil it down in just its simplest terms, right? If you're saved in here, if you're a believer, if you're born again, 
you have believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you didn't accomplish that. God did something in you, for you, and to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How much did you have to do with your natural birth? None. I think scripture clearly says we did not initiate our spiritual new birth either. By God's grace, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were made alive. I'm quoting Ephesians. We were made alive together with Christ. Something has happened to us. We are the circumcision. Thus, we worship how? By the Spirit. We glory in what? Christ Jesus. Do you see the difference? We don't glory in ourselves. We don't laud what we accomplish. I heard one pastor say it this way. Salvation is not a human accomplishment. It's a divine achievement. All sufficient merit. Do you believe that? It is done. It is finished. No more debt I owe. Paid in full, all sufficient merit, now my own. I was given merit, I didn't merit, right? Something's happened to me. I am the circumcision, you are the circumcision, we are the circumcision, and we worship in a state of utter and total dependence by the Spirit. And we glory, or I would say we have joy we love God because he first loved us, so we glory in Christ because Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And therefore, church, Philippians, we put no confidence in the flesh. Zero. Really? Is that how we think? I'll be honest with you. I struggle with this. I mean, not with circumcision. That's not an issue. But I think you're like me, I'm like you. We're tempted to be Jesus plus. Jesus plus my sense of how well I'm doing with spiritual disciplines. Jesus plus my church attendance. Jesus plus baptism communion, what spiritual gifts I have. And we play this comparison game with other believers or we compare church with church and we start to, you know, like I grew up in a church tradition that was very much a us and them. Some of you did too. We stand in our little corner of the kingdom and we point fingers at others and how, talk about how less than we, they are than us because they don't believe in fill in the blank or they don't practice fill in the blank. We not only do that with spiritual or theological issues, we do that with moral issues. We, we look down our sanctimonious noses. Can I just be this blunt this morning, y'all right? We look down our sanctimonious noses at others because they're struggling with the sins that we don't. Now, we got our own, but they're not as bad. If we're honest... There's a temptation we all have to, to want to shift some, some, not all. We want to shift some of our spiritual confidence away from Christ and the all-sufficiency of Christ to just a little bit of us. And Paul under inspiration of the Spirit, writes about false teachers who weren't going around saying Jesus is a three-headed dragon. It's just Jesus, and bring the circumcision along too, and he calls them mangy, evil-working dogs who mutilate the flesh. It's not wrong for us to hear those words and understand 
That's how God thinks about such things. It seems like our Bibles say somewhere, our righteousness is as filthy rags. We bring nothing of worth to the table. So when Paul talks about confidence in the flesh, what he's referring to is confidence in any human achievement or effort at the expense of spirit dependence and joy or glory in Christ. That's what he's talking about when he talks about confidence in the flesh. And here's how much room he leaves for that. Zero. So at this point, there might have been some, perhaps some of these small te- uh, false teachers, who would have said, yeah, okay, Paul, right? He's saying that. He's calling us dogs. He's saying put no confidence in the flesh because he's got no room to brag. They're, they're, you know, Paul is, you know, the Corinthians, this is in Corinthians, that the Corinthians thought Paul's letters were big and bad, but when he actually showed up in person, they were like, meh. Apparently, best we can tell from Scripture and history Paul wasn't even that much of an impressive speaker. He didn't get up and wow people. So there might have been some criticism leveled at Paul right here. Uh, he, he, <laughs> Paul's weak sauce, okay? Now, and he talks about Jesus, and that's good. But listen, Paul says, you want to talk about confidence in the flesh? Let's talk about confidence in the flesh. Chapter 3, verse 4. We are those who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he's got reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You want to talk about religious pedigree? Let's go, Paul says. I'm probably exaggerating that a little bit, but not much, right? He lists seven reasons why he, has conf- he could have confidence in the flesh. Let's just look at him one by one. First thing he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, according to Jewish tradition. That's what had to happen. You're born a Jew, eight days later, you're circumcised. That's according to the law of Moses. Here's what Paul's saying. I've observed, I have observed all the right rituals. I've checked the boxes. I have been circumcised. You mangy dogs. Again, I'm exaggerating. He says, number two, I'm of the people of Israel. He's got the right ancestry. He's a descendant of Abraham. Like you could trade, anybody do, what's what's that thing? Um, Genealogy stuff, right? Whatever the, the company is. You could get lost in that stuff, right? You trace your family history back. You know, maybe some of you found out you related to, you know, some ancient king of England or something. But Paul could trace his lineage back to Abraham. That's, that's impressive, right? Paul is of the people of Israel. You ever heard anybody talk about how their parents are Christians? Their grandfather was a pastor? You realize, like, I've had two uncles... Six cousins, I I mean, two grandfathers between Mary and I who were all in ministry. Like, like we've been in, I'm 46 years old. I've been in church 46 years and nine months. So it's like the history, the ancestry, you could just go down the line in my family and some of you can do the same thing and, and, and you, you can find like Christianity like at the very core of what it means to be a Cox or a Fuller or, or whoever, right? It's like Paul's got the ancestry. Then 
He says, number three, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, you remember Jacob? Okay. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. Rachel was his favorite wife. And Benjamin was the second child of Rachel. Benjamin, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So Israel, that's where the nation of Israel got its name. And the tribe of Benjamin was the tribe from which the first king of Israel came, Saul. And Paul's name used to be Saul, okay? Benjamin was the son of Israel's favorite wife. So he's kind of not only of the people of Israel, but he's from sort of an elite group from the people of Israel. Number four, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, which I think is a reference to the fact that many in Paul's day the Jews had forsaken some of their Jewish heritage. You might have heard of the Hellenists. The Hellenists were Jews who stopped speaking Hebrew and started speaking Greek. They, they had forsaken some of the ancient Jewish traditions. And Paul's saying, I haven't done that. I've not only got the ethnic heritage, I've remained loyal to it. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Number five, as to the law, a Pharisee. We know a little bit about the Pharisees from our study through Luke. The Pharisees were of the strictest order religious. How many of you grew up in, in what you might call a fundamentalist tradition? Anybody? Yeah? Legalistic tradition, right? Lots of legalism. I did. Paul was of the strictest order religious. He was a Pharisee, okay? Number six, as to zeal, a persecutor. What's that mean? He's talking about passion, sincerity. He's literally saying nobody's been more passionate and zealous about their religion than I have. I went so far as to persecute the church, right? Because we thought it was a threat to Judaism. I remember, um, do do y'all remember the Brownsville revival that happened in the 90s? Well, when Mary and I were in Bible college, this particular college we were at, they invited, I think he was the youth pastor from that church, to come and speak one time. I don't remember much about it, but I remember this dude was as intense as anybody I'd ever seen in my life. I remember we walked into the chapel on the campus, and he was pacing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, on the stage, praying, right? And then he proceeded to stand up and speak to this student body, young, impressionable college students like Mary and I, and he land-blasted us because we weren't intense enough. We weren't passionate enough. We didn't get crazy enough. We didn't get loud enough. And he browbeat us to the point that Mary and I, we actually got left that service and called my parents, and we were all tore up because we felt like we'd been beat up because we weren't passionate enough. You, you guys have probably known people that one of, the, one of the ways in which they look down their noses at others is based on their sense of their own passion. Paul says, I was as passionate as anybody has ever been because I went so far as to imprison and even kill Christians. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Morally, Paul checked all the boxes. And we see this a lot. Some Christians have this overdeveloped sense of their own moralism. And they treat that as a, as a reason to be confident in themselves and look down their noses at others. Have anybody experienced that before? Moralism. Paul says, I was, I was the best law keeper. Now just consider how many people, how many Christians, how many of us are tempted to put confidence in rituals, ancestry, accolades, ethnicity, strict adherence to traditions and practice, passion and sincerity, or morally upright behavior. And here's what makes us so uncomfortable about this, is those things don't sound all that bad. Like, 
it's good to come from a good Christian family. It's good to be a moral person. It's good to be baptized and take communion and go through a membership class and attend church. It's good. It's good to have all of those things. It's good to have passion and zeal. But here's the issue. There's no room for the root of our confidence to be in any of that. None of that. And listen, this is why churches get divided. Like one of the things Paul has been lauding in Philippians alongside joy is what? Unity. Unity. Why do we get divided? It's because we shift confidence. I think fundamentally you could break down any church split and boil it down to this. At some point, confidence shifted away from the sufficiency of Christ to something else. Paul says, if if anybody's got reason to be confident in the flesh, it's me. But, verse 7, whatever gain I had from all those things, the seven we just walked through, I counted. Everybody say counted. I counted as loss... For the sake of Christ, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. I can't wait to get to that word. In order that I might gain Christ. I counted. That word means that at some point, post-conversion, okay, Now, what what have we already said about conversion? Paul will tell you, just just read Paul's letters and read his salvation story in the book of Acts, and you know Paul understands he didn't make a decision for Jesus. Jesus made a decision for him. He didn't check a connect card on the back of some seat in a church service. Jesus literally knocked him off a horse, blinded him, and said, you're done, come follow me. So after, and and, and Paul says it this way in Galatians, he said, when God by his grace, the God who knew me before I was born, when God by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, when that happened, Some point in the past, after his conversion, Paul did a reckoning. This Paul, who has all the religious pedigree in the world, he did an assessment. That's what that word means. He took all that pedigree, all that that reason that he could boast in his own religiousness, and he compared it to Christ. Again, God by his grace has revealed Christ to Paul. Paul has seen him. Paul understands who Christ is and what he's accomplished. He's beheld the glory of Christ. Remember what we read in chapter 2? Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality of God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Like Paul's considered Christ. And he compared Christ with all his religious pedigree. And he says, here's the conclusion I came to. It's all loss. Detriment. In other words, if we put it in context, if any of my confidence shifts from Christ to that, my joy goes down. Rejoice in the Lord. We got to talk about this some more because there's a threat And that threat is for confidence to be placed in things other than Christ. And let me tell you about what I've done. I've got all the religious pedigree, but I weighed all of that when God, by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. And here's the conclusion, the settled conclusion that Paul came to. All that stuff is lost to me. And any shift of my confidence whatsoever, no matter how small, 
is going to compromise my joy in Christ. My joy in Christ is the way that the greatest good, God's glory, is seen, savored, and celebrated. Connecting the dots? It's loss. And he, he goes on. He says, I count. This, this reckoning is settled, but there is this continual counting that goes on to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them, y'all ready for this word? As rubbish. Boy, the English Bibles water that down for us. You know what the word means? Dung. Poop. I'm sorry if that offends you, but that's the word. It's a big steaming pile compared... I'm not trying to be crude for crude's sake. We've got to let Paul be as blunt as he wants to be under inspiration of the Spirit. He's called out these false teachers, calling them dogs, evil workers, mutilators of the flesh. This is a big deal in Paul's mind when it comes to joy. And after rehearsing his own religious pedigree, he says, compared to the surpassing worth of Christ... All that stuff is unmentionable. I don't even want to look at it. Because, it's, and listen, it's not just an intellectual decision. It's an emotional one. Because he says, I've weighed all that. I've counted all of that. It's loss. It's rubbish to me. We'll stick with that word. Some of y'all started to squirm. It's rubbish but I counted all his loss in order that I might gain Christ. It's not only he's, that stuff's not worth comparing to him, but as I've compared it, all I want is him. All I want is him. Why, Paul, verse 9? That in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. How many of you know you've got to have joy in Christ to long to share in his suffering? Yeah. We're going to come back to that next week. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain, a re re attain the resurrection from the dead. We're going to come back next week and look at verses 9 to 11 in detail. We're going to unpack those phrases, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, having righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, knowing him. Knowing him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and by any means possible, attain the resurrection from the dead. What does all that mean? Those are huge phrases. We're going to spend a whole sermon on that next week. But here's what I think we need to see. Any shift in our confidence away from Christ to anything else, even if it looks, sounds, and smells spiritual, is going to be a diminishment of our joy. And any diminishment of our joy in God is a diminishment of our ability to strive for. Here's where we're getting very soon. Forgetting what lies behind me, I press on toward the mark, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's where this is going. Do you see him aiming us at that? Any diminishment, any shift in my confidence away from Christ to anything else, no matter how good, spiritual, religious, righteous it might seem, it's going to be a diminishment of my joy and ergo a diminishment of my ability to aim for the highest and greatest good, which is the glory of God revealed in Christ. We need to count. One of the saddest things to me in the church, and I've experienced this myself, I'm not, 
not on a pedestal here talking down to anybody. This is my story. One of the saddest things in the church is when a Christian who by God's grace has had their dead heart quickened, has had their blinded eyes open to see the glory of Christ and then live with less joy or tepid joy because at some point, maybe because of bad discipleship, maybe because of just ignorance, maybe because of a a church tradition that's just a couple of clicks off, their confidence shifts away from Christ to something else. And, it, and it's, it's sad because I, I really think this is true. There are a lot of saved, but you, you know how we, we, we tend to, we tend to narrow the gospel down to this one thing that's true and right and good and necessary, but we narrow it down to this. Jesus Christ died for my sins so I can go to heaven when I die. And so therefore, Christianity has zero benefit to me now. It's only benefit to me when I die. Jesus did die for our sins so we could go to heaven when we die. Okay, I'm not saying that didn't happen. I'm just saying there's a lot of Christians that are living with less joy than they could. Because their confidence is in themselves, maybe to the smallest degree. And I think Paul is saying, if if he were to sit down with any one of us in this room and look us square in the eye and were to identify one click, one degree that our confidence had shifted away from Christ to ourselves, he would look at us with passion and sincerity and intensity and he would say... Rejoice in the Lord. And let me say it again. We will never be unified. You know know where unity comes from? Really? Not agreement on preferences, but shared joy. How is it that 80 or 90,000 people would agree to cram into a stadium and sit on uncomfortable seats for four hours and watch grown men beat their brains out with pads and a weird-looking ball? I do it! Why? Along with 80 or 90,000 other crazy people. Because we share a joy. There's a joy in it. So we'll get unified. We'll line up. We'll stand in line. We'll stand in long lines for bathrooms. We'll sit out there in the heat. Why? For the joy of it. How how do we have the same mind? How do we be in one accord? How do we have fearless unity in the face of opposition? How, How do we come to the place where we would say, I don't care if I live or die. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Joy. The greatest good. You know, um, how, how do we effectively evangelize? What time is it? Three minutes. How do we effectively evangelize? You know what one of the criticisms, consistent criticisms of Res Church is? We don't do enough outreach. We don't have enough outreach programs. Candidly, that word outreach, it, it, it can mean a hundred different things to different people. It can mean anything from knocking on doors and asking people if they know Jesus to let's hand out water bottles at a 5K that's happening in downtown Greer. I'm not against all of that. I'm not. I would never say that programmatic, organized outreach by a local church is a bad use of time and resources. And I'm not critical of other churches that do those things, and you shouldn't be either. 
We do some of them, but candidly, on purpose, it's minimal. And here's why. We have a laser-like focus as a church, as elders, as leaders, on one thing. Creating places and spaces and environments that lead you and I to count. To compare everything to Christ. And in so doing, by the help of the Spirit, by the work of God, through his spirit. You remember what Paul said in verse 12? We work out what he's working in. As you count and I count, and we do this reckoning that Paul did, and we come to the conclusion, there's nothing, there's nothing that compares to him. The surpassing worth of Christ. If Christians got a hold of that, evangelism would take care of itself because we can't help but talk about what we love. I can spend 60 seconds with you and tell you what you love most with a couple of questions, because you'll talk about it. I always think about my grandfather, that everywhere we went, everywhere we went, we'd be standing in an elevator. He'd come on vacation with us, and we're in the pool with these random strangers, and he starts asking them, do you know Jesus? And we're like, (laughs) we get in an elevator. I'm not lauding his methods all the time, but we get in an elevator and he'd say, look at the stranger and go, one day we're going a lot higher. (laughs) He carried a Gideon New Testament in his pocket everywhere he went. You know, and, and he obviously he didn't come up in the generation with the smartphones and all that stuff. He never had one, to my knowledge. But if he had a free moment, he pulled that little Bible out. I remember I lived with him, he and my grandmother one summer because I was doing an internship near where they were, and I was up early that morning, and he got up. And I was in the den. He, I, he was in the kitchen. He didn't know I was up. And it was raining. And I just, I heard him thanking the Lord for the rain. It was just him and the Lord, right? It was just this beautiful moment that wasn't forced or contrived. That's, he counted everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And he grew up in a legalistic tradition that made all these rules, these unnecessary, unhelpful rules, and and tried to almost train people to shift their confidence away from Christ to these precepts and rules and traditions. But somehow, through all of that, I think he reckoned it's all about Jesus. And he didn't just know Jesus, he loved Jesus. It was his joy. And you know what? He couldn't help but talk about him. Programs, evangelistic programs, don't in and of themselves generate a contagious, attractive presentation of the gospel. You know what? You know what I think the Lord uses to get people's attention? It's Christians that are so happy in Jesus, they can't help but talk about him. So our primary focus at Res is the glory of God and the joy of his people. Because if we could have a church that rejoices in the Lord, we could have a church it's not only unified, not only fearless, but also effective. A church that can say, there's nothing better than you. Nothing. Let's pray.
Lord, I need to count. I need to count. And I think I'm among a group of people this morning that per- perhaps feel the same way as we need to heed Paul's warning. We don't have someone trying to come in and teach Jesus plus circumcision, but there, there is this culture, this church culture in which there's a variety of flavors that might tempt us, a variety of flavors of, I don't know, the way we talk about the gospel or the way we think about the gospel that might tempt us to shift some of our confidence away from Christ to ourselves. And I just wonder if that's not at least a primary reason why so many Christians, their joy in you is tepid. It could be other reasons, but that's at least one of them. So I pray that I pray that we would not be a church of tepid joy, but that we would rejoice in the Lord, that we would it's, it's, we hear Paul's command. And we realize that the obedience to that command can't be forced or contrived. It must be genuine and authentic. So help us with our joy. Lead us to count. Lead us to consider all of the things that we have been tempted to root some of our confidence in. And may we not only see that that's not going to get us anywhere, but that we would see that Compared to Christ, those things are loss. They're rubbish. And as we do that counting, I pray that the joy of the Lord would grow like wildfire in this church. That it would spread and it would be so thick and so real, people would know we're your disciples because of the way we love one another that there would be such a unity, a fearless unity, that it would be obvious that you're up to something. And that there would be such joy in you that we would not be able to help but talk about you. That we would scatter the good seed of the gospel everywhere we go with joy. That's our prayer. Help us with that. Help us with our joy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z-Faith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.